I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and lamps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, well, hello. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be finishing up Volume 3 of the Library of America's Anthology of Civil War Writings, which will take us uh, through most of the winter of, of 1863 into 1864. And uh, being that this, these are going to cover winter months, there's not going to be much about battles to cover here or campaigns. There's a few. There's a little bit here, but mostly will be, um, I, I think... I guess if I'm going to try to find a thematic center here, it's about the 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 kind of growing certainty that the war is going to end uh, victorious for for the Union, and what consequences that's going to have on the way people are thinking about the war, the way people are are looking to the future and beginning to look to the future of what's going to happen to the United States after the war, um, and uh, you know, and, and kind of giving people time to maybe think a little bit more about what what the war is going to be about and was about at the end. And it's kind of a, maybe a continuation of the Gettysburg Address in that sense. But um, we're going to get uh, several different voices here. So anyways, we're going to start out with actually the, the Mine Run campaign, which is a small campaign in Virginia, uh, which was the final one led by George Meade before um, Grant came to command the whole armies in Virginia. And of course, Meade would stay on as the commander of, of the, uh, the Army of the Potomac, but Grant would be the real one in charge as he per took personal command of those campaigns in, in Virginia. But so we get uh, Wilbur Fisk, who we heard from before in other sources. I don't know if I much talked about him, but he wrote uh, these accounts for the Green Mountain Freeman, uh, accounts of what was happening on the war. And this one's dated November 2nd and December 8th, 1863. And basically, this is the final battle in the East, and it would be uh, the final until the Overland Campaign begins under the command of, of Grant. It was an inconclusive battle um, that... You know, in terms of casualties, kind of a disappointment for for the Union. In fact, as we're going to see in a minute, Meade came out of this pretty uh, frustrated about his future. Um, but uh, there are some interesting things in this document. One that struck me was the amount of the role rumors played in conveying information to soldiers, how much they got from from rumors. I think we talked about this before when we just notice how well informed soldiers were kind of like uh what we talk about when we, when we talk about how slaves carried news we said the the great vine telegraph and and there's something like that going on here too um but he's a little bit frustrated about the rumors here saying um you know there's really not idea much idea what's going on i think that might you know i've never really heard much about this campaign i don't know that much about it but it seems none of the soldiers even knew what was sort of going on everyone sort of had their own theories and many rumors were spreading. So it's kind of what we saw with uh, Enda Bernstein's leadership of the Army of Northern, uh, sorry, the Army of the Potomac. But here, of course, Meade is going to uh, win the confidence of Grant moving forward. 
Um, another interesting thing here is when he talks about after the battle, the aftermath of the battle in his December 8th letter, he talks about his desire to flee. And I think desertion is going to be a much bigger theme, as I presume as we go forward, it is in this episode as well. Just um, the, the giving up of, especially of Southern soldiers, but here's a Northern soldier thinking about it. And the way he writes, I think it's, he's reflecting on like, I think this shows some weariness with the war, I guess. As he says, um, but after all, to tell the plain truth of the matter, there's no use in lying. In the event of a charge, I know I should have had a strong preference for running the other way and placing as much distance between myself as possible, or as much distance as possible between the rebel minis and my own precious self. Vermonters are the very best fighters in the world, so everyone knows, everyone who says that knows anything about it. But you've never seen a Vermonter manifest any eagerness to get into fight nor any desire to back out after he does get in. So even though he says we're going to fight if we have to, there's a, a sense here I got of of just a, a, an overall weariness with with the war. And I th- will mention with the desertion issue, um, if people signed up for three years at the start of the war, they're reaching the end of their terms here. And this is going to be a recruitment issue for both sides. So is conscription going to be enough to carry off the war to its necessary conclusion? And so recruitment and desertion and these things are going to have a bigger toll, especially on the Southern Army, as we'll see. So so let's let's move on from that. Um, So the next document we have is George Meade writing to his wife. And we got a lot of these letters. It seems it'd be something um, there seems to be a significant number of these letters. And he's basically talks about the failure of this mine run campaign, this this attempt to stick it to Lee one last time before. The calendar flipped over to 1864, um, but he f- definitely fears of being relieved. He, he's seen this before uh, in the Army of the Potomac. Um, um, but he defends himself, as he often does in these letters to his wife, and I think he defends himself on some pretty solid ground. Um, he basically says, we lacked roads, we lacked, and I, I don't want to get into the tactics and the, the strategy of this campaign and the geography of it. I, I looked up a little bit of it, but you know, whatever. But he, he says, or he's explaining to his wife, there was just wasn't the means to carry on this campaign the way it was originally planned. And he failed to do the attack despite the political desire to have that done. And he, he really meditates here on the contrast between the political considerations and military judgment. And he comes to the conclusion that uh, political considerations are always going to sort of win out in these military affairs, that it, that war in a democracy like this is going to be ultimately something decided in the ballot box and by politicians or by politically motivated officers. And someone who makes decisions purely on military judgment is going to take the heat for failures like this, even if there was nothing he could have done. Right. And to reflect on this further, he talks about the media attacks he's facing, something he's mentioned before, I think, to his wife. And um, here, he, he writes on this. Well, this is more on the government. He says, I understand from an officer just returned from Washington that on meeting a prominent member of the government, he was asked if the Army of the Potomac had stopped running yet and whether there's any fighting men among it in the generals. Uh, and this is, of course, just months after the Battle of Gettysburg. I, I think there's still that kind of frustration among people in Washington that Meade wasn't able to hit, you know, 
get the finishing blow on Lee after the Battle of Gettysburg. Still a belief that the war could be won with one decisive battle. And, and Grant's going to come in and, and clean that strategy away. I, it seems for good. Am I understanding for good? We'll see if people were complaining about Grant, too, about not winning the war fast enough. But Grant is going to come in with a strategy of relentless assault moving forward, constant pressure on Meade or on Lee until he's forced into to surrender. It's going to take a year, but uh, it works. Um, next, we have a wonderful document, a speech uh, dated the 3rd or the I guess the 4th, the 4th of December in Philadelphia called Our Work Is Not Done. Um, this is um, given to the American Anti-Slavery Society, some meeting they were having in in Philadelphia. And basically the conclusion here is emancipation is no longer enough. It's not enough. It, I guess I, he never was enough, but Douglas was always really good at keeping his eye on the ball and knowing what f has to be fought and, you know, never being necessarily content with one victory and looking ahead to the next victory, right? Early in the war, he's like, this has to be a war about emancipation. And he pushed on that and pushed on that and pushed on that, not talking about reconstruction or the future status of black people that much then it was mobilize black troops get them in the fields uh help us win our citizenship that way and then once that's been done then he he moves the goalposts to uh, a post-war settlement that's going to incorporate black people into the body politic and you know i don't think this is uh, maybe moving goalposts is the wrong language here it's it's what he needed to do right he he fought the battles that were in front of him but never stop thinking about what the final result of those battles would be. So basically he argues for the full integration of blacks into American society as a necessity outcome of the war. And he's, you know, he talks about how much work there was still yet to do in convincing people, even of abolition, how the public battle hasn't been won yet. And even abolition hasn't been fully won yet. So he says that still has to be won, but we can start to look forward to what comes after that. And part of that's going to be getting more people on board about abolition. But he talks about how prejudice is real, still a real thing, uh, prejudice against color, I should say, even in Philadelphia, which he declares is one of the more hospitable towns for black people. Um, he talks about the danger of compromise and how this is a dangerous moment in which compromise on issues of civil rights, on voting, on integration into the body politic, as he puts it, is, you know, compromise at this point is more dangerous than ever because it might enshrine a certain status for black people in, in, when the war is settled. Um, so that's what he says. And he focuses clearly on voting rights as the way to do that, which, of course, is going to be a main part of the reconstruction efforts in the aftermath of the war. But I think what makes it none of this is very surprising, of course, but I think what makes the speech great is he talks about the meaning of union. And he, he says the old union is dead. And he, of course, is now, of course, that's what 
the North side was always calling itself, right? The Union side versus the Confederate side. The Federals, of course, was used, but that, I think that was a little bit, had more of a pejorative sound to it. You know, the argument was the side of the Union. And he says, like, what does this mean? He actually kind of starts to break down what this means. And for some, the people who wanted to see the war just as a restoration of the old were the, tended to be the people who didn't see the war as a revolution and instead saw the Civil War as simply about preserving the Union you know, and not going beyond that. But Douglas here makes it very clear that in his view, the old Union is dead. The old arrangement of a divided country, a divided economic system, a divided political system in which uh, divided along how black people are treated. Even if slavery is dead, you could still have a, a restoration of, a of, a, of the old system of a type, right? And of course, this is to some degree what happened in Reconstruction, right? Where black people remained on the land as subjects of the landowning class, whether through some crop land system or a sharecropping system or something like that. Um, and certainly Douglas had good reason to fear that that is what would happen. Um, so instead he comes to, he has a very great conclusion to this speech where he says, um, where he talks about the meaning of unity in the union. He writes, what business then have we to fight for the old union? We are not fighting for it. We are fighting for something incomparably better than the old union. We're fighting for unity, unity of object Unity of institutions in which there shall be no north, no south, no east, no west, no black, no white, but a solidarity of a nation, making every slave free and every free man a voter. So obviously he's seen voting here. Now, knowing Douglas's strategy here, that's maybe not necessarily the end. There might be other issues, but once voting rights are won, basic citizenship, then we can talk about those there. But he's taking it one step at a time in a very deliberate way. But I think what's really radical and here he might be building off the language of the Gettysburg Address a little bit too saying like like America is being remade this is a revolution no doubt about it and he's talking he really breaks down the meaning of the word unity not just unity in a political sense but unity in institutions a unity in rights all right what's yeah, the unity of object like a unity of goal, I think he means there. All right, next we have Abraham Lincoln's annual message to Congress, December 1863. I'm pretty sure I must have talked about this. Or I must have talked about this in the series on Lincoln's writings, which I did a while ago. So, um, you know, mostly, surprisingly, he doesn't say as much about the war as I thought. Of course, as president, he had many things on his mind. Uh, he talks a lot here about the State Department issues, uh, such as relations with other countries, uh, disputes with other countries. He has this interesting take on, on uh, like, essentially, like, draft dodgers of sort, like people who are claiming American citizenship to avoid service and wars in other countries. Or maybe he's talking about people who are abroad claiming American citizenship. It's like the, the, the 1960s draft dodgers in Canada or something. It's like claiming American citizenship on one hand, but not serving it in the military as necessary. So he talks about that. He also talks about the new territories that are being established and how that's going to bring in new immigration eventually. And he's actually encouraging that. So he's, he's encouraging Congress to pass laws to make immigration easier. Um, he writes, 
While the demand for labor is thus increased here, tens of thousands of persons destitute of remunerative occupation are thronging our foreign consulates and offering to emigrate to the United States. If essential, but very cheap assistance can be afforded. It's easy to see that under the sharp discipline of civil war, the nation is beginning a new life. So the point being here, and I think in a lot of what he's writing here, so let's start to think about the future foundation for our prosperity. And part of that's going to be, you know, borders that are open enough to accommodate the growing demand for labor that's going to exist in the West um, to replace workers lost in the war. Obviously, a non-insignificant number of people were disabled or killed in the war. And, you know, but mostly this opening of, of the West, which, of course, is going to be the next phase of American history uh, in many ways. Uh, this is in the, the Richard White book on late 19th century America, that's a major theme of his his take on Reconstruction, is that it wasn't just about the South, it was also about remaking the West in a way. Uh, I urge you to read that book. It's uh, um, The Republic for Which It Stands, I think is the name of that book. It's part of that Oxford series of, of the American history. Um, when he does get to the war, he focuses on the movement towards emancipation and the recruitment of blacks and the progress that's being made in recruiting black soldiers and the already the battlefield presence of black soldiers um, that's already being uh, felt by, by commanders in the field. So I'm not going to say too much more about it, but it does get into a lot of details of like fiscal matters and, and other kind of State Department issues that aren't directly related to the war itself. And then we have another Lincoln uh, document, his Proclamation of Amnesty and Reconstruction. This is, of course, a very, very famous document. It's been analyzed by people who try to understand what, uh, what Lincoln's policies for Reconstruction would have been had he not been assassinated. That's, of course, a big historical question. Um, there's those who say he would have been more, he would have ultimately supported more the radical Republican position, but he was a, a very practical politician who didn't want to, who knew to take things one step at a time. We know this from his gradual approach to emancipation, to his statements on colonization, which he probably never really believed in or took seriously. Um, so, so that's, we got to consider that when we think about his reconstruction policy and then there's those who who like to use him as a foil i guess this would be more the southern uh kind of old-fashioned is it the dunning school of reconstruction studies who who want to see the radical republicans as as imposing crazy policies on the south through military dictatorship not something like the lincoln would have done like lincoln would have been a more moderate position in his reconstruction policies and even in Foner, you get a sense that that Lincoln was presenting would have had embraced a more moderate form of Reconstruction. And there's even that line in the Spielberg movie Lincoln, where he's talking uh, with uh, who is he talking to? Thaddeus Stevens, right? And they're like, "Oh, we'll fight about Reconstruction later." And, and you know, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced Lincoln would have been as conservative as this document makes it seem. I, I think it's that step-by-step approach um, that that Lincoln had done throughout his career, at least throughout the war. Um, but basically the policy is restoration of property except slaves to people in the South, um, whether they were active in rebellion or not. 
um, support for wartime policy on slavery, continuation of those wartime policies on slavery, in, in other words, emancipation. So something like the 13th Amendment. This is, of course, a year before it would be passed, but that's um, um, what he's talking about there. Um, and then he says, the only people who this would not apply to, this returning of property except slaves, would be to people who uh, mistook, mis mistreated black soldiers, like used that policy of like executing or enslaving soldiers who were captured. Uh, they would be exempt from that policy and officials like generals and officials and people ran in the government and presidents and those kinds of people. They would potentially have their property seized. But otherwise, um, you know, and then, of course, I don't think this mentions the 10 percent plan. Maybe it does. But um, oh, yeah, I think it does here. Yeah, one tenth. That's right. One tenth of the voters issuing like some kind of oath of. Of you know, oath to the United States, if you had 10% of voters, you could like be 10% so of men. In other words, you could re be restored to the union. Well, there's probably, were always that many unionists in the South. I don't know. It differs probably to state to state. Some probably less, some probably more. But of course, if you have black voters, you're almost guaranteed to have that 10% just, I mean, he puts the bar so low here to make it easy for the states to be reunited. Now, I don't want to take this as his reconstruction plan. And, you know, someone who's an expert on this can correct me if I'm wrong or has read more documents on this. But I think his focus here is on defending emancipation and continuing to keep his eye on winning the war as quickly and as bloodlessly as possible. I don't think this is... I think he would assign something ra like radical Republicans would have given them on citizenship or voting rights or even perhaps land reform. I think we would have had a better chance of land reform if we would have had Lincoln as president than we had with uh, this divided government between someone who's against Reconstruction, Johnson, and someone who is, uh, you know, in a Congress that's for a more radical type of Reconstruction. So that's all I'll say about that for now. But, um, yeah. So next we have a series of documents from civilian types who are all basically seeing the writing on the wall, turning of perceptions, if you will, about where the war is going to go. The first is George Templeton Strong, who we've heard from several times before. This is from his diary, December 11th to 13th, 1863. Um, and he actually talks about the response to reconstruction policies being positively uh, reviewed by the people. Strong's actually a pretty good window into maybe what the people, at least of New York, were saying about things because he was... You know, you go and talk to people, read the news, talk to people, and then write about it in his diary. He's also very optimistic about the war, and he talks about what he feels is like a kind of a sad kind of arrogance about Jeff Davis and how Jeff Davis is sort of defeated but can't really admit it, and that's that's kind of rooted in some kind of perverse arrogance. Um, on the other side, we have Catherine Edmondson's diary, and uh, so... Uh, that's around the same date, at December 11th. She's from the plantation class, if you remember from previous episodes. And what's cool about this document, and really significant about this more so than Strong's, is the turning on Jeff Davis by Southern civilians, um, like our author here, um, and general pessimism about the war and where it's going. And this is going to be so key to 
changing the fortunes of the war is when the com well she's not common but when the civilians of the south begin to lose patience with the war begin to call for men to desert and basically stop supporting from home because they were some of the biggest supporters early on um and she actually brings up this issue of the term of enlistment the three-year enlistments running out for many of the southern soldiers and her opinion is that the buck stops with him. She says, uh, I say Mr. Davis, for he is, we are told, who just detached Longstreet from Bragg's command before the late battle. By his orders, too, was the Army of Northern Georgia reorganized to face the foe and to cause this late disaster at Lookout. Um, a scribe. Brigades were recast, divisions remodeled, and when the shock of the battle came, men were led into action by generals who had never led them before. And I think it's this document, too, that talks about how it might be the, it might be another one, but it's the same idea. Is that somehow, as soon as Jackson died, General Jackson's death led to a string of defeats. Now I'm not, sh I, don't, I doubt very much if Jackson had lived that it would have changed the fortune of the later battles. It puts that's puts too much weight on one particular general who's not even in command of the army. But this idea that like it's been disaster after disaster after after Jackson died, I, I'm guessing that's a pretty common idea throughout the South. Um, similarly, we have Mary Chestnut's diary from January 1st, 1864, which is just full of despair. Um, of course, Mary Chestnut's a, a Virginian, and this one's just full of despair and rumors and, and just about how bad things are getting. Now, much of this passage from her diary are, are just quotes of people she's, she must be conversing with and, and getting, um, and getting opinions from so this is an interesting document because so much of it does just seem to be random opinions she hears on the streets or, or talking to people um even frustration with the british that was always a southern hope right that the british needed cotton so much that they would eventually recognize the confederacy but but for that issue of slavery she writes slavery was a sore spot on this continent and england touched up the yankee that they so hated on the raw when they were shouting hurrah for liberty, hurrah for General Jackson, whom the British turned their backs on, who did not turn his back on the ex-conquerors of Waterloo. English writers know where to flick. They set the Yankees up uh, on us by incessant nagging and jeering at their inconsistency. Now the Yankees have a bit in their teeth. After a while, they'll send higher and higher in virtue until maybe they'll even attack Mormonism in its den. So kind of a lot to unpack there, even a, a nice stab at Mormonism, um, which is, of course, a religion that developed in the northern part of the United States and, and moved west. Um, but that kind of the vitriol towards England as, you know, blaming them for stirring up abolitionism and then blaming them for not recognizing the Confederacy. It's kind of there's like some sour grapes there, certainly, um, in her opinion of, of the, the U.K., um, yeah, a similar document from Judith McGuire's diary, same day as the Mary Chestnut one, uh, January 1st, 1864. Um, these were Virginians who, who fled when the Union advanced to seize their home. Um, and she just mostly emphasizes the losses that the South is facing, uh, and, and the long-term cost that's going to be for the Southern society. So it's that it's of course this was well known by this point, but it's kind of you're getting more voices like this shouting out that like this is permanently devastating us. It's if the war keeps on, you know, it's just the manpower alone is going to 
be harmed by this. Uh, quote, thus we bury one by one the dearest, the brightest, the best of our domestic circles. Now in our excitement, while we are scattered and many of us homeless, these separations are poignant, nay, overwhelming. But how can we estimate the sadness of the heart which will pervade the South when the war is over and we are again gathered together around the family hearths and altars and find the circles broken? One another gone. Sometimes the father and husband, the beloved head of the household, in whom was centered all that made life dear. Um, and she has a whole paragraph. She goes on this issue. Um, but again, these are the opinions that bit by bit, like little drops of water, eventually going to tear down the Confederacy quite rapidly in 64. I mean, the, the, the fall is pretty quick and uh, sudden, I think. Um, but it was building towards it. And the losses and the home front, the lack of the home front support is going to be so key to that. Another Southern voice, mostly we're getting Southern voices here, is an interesting one, Patrick Claiborne. And maybe you've heard about Patrick Claiborne before. Patrick Claiborne was actually a Southerner of Irish ancestry, or actually born in Ireland, so not just Irish ancestry, he's an Irishman. Actually served in the British Army, came to America in 49, settled in Arkansas, and then eventually joined the Confederate Army and moved up the ranks a little bit into a... Um, became a commanding general of the Army of Tennessee. So he's a pretty high-ranking officer at this point and from a different background than most Southerners, most Southern gentry would have been, although there are immigrants in the Southern gentry class. But, um, you know, it's not as much an immigrant society as the North was becoming at the time in the West. So what's his proposal here? He makes the proposal, and it's a pretty well-thought-out one, that we need to emancipate the slaves and recruit them. And that's it. If we want to win this war, if we want any hope of winning this war, if we want any hope of our independence, we're going to have to give up our founding mission, um, which, of course, was suppressed. This was, this was like meant to be published, and it was suppressed. Davis ordered the suppression. This is a quoting from the editor here. Davis ordered the suppression of the memorandum and all discussion about it. Now, he would uh, eventually die at the Battle of um, Franklin, uh, the major victory, the final defeat of the Army of the Tennessee, where, uh, what's his name? Um, is it Thomas? Totally crushes General Hood. Um, in, in the end of 64, one of the final major battles of the war, at least in the West. So what's his proposal? Um, well, it's like this. I mean, it's... Well, I'm sorry, I was getting my thoughts together here. The argument has several parts. One is kind of just military necessity. We need this, just I mean, just to win the war. We need the manpower and keeping a big chunk of our workforce as slaves is going to undermine that both because we're not using them properly and as a country at war for its survival would use all its manpower he says they will be we're, we're using a lot of man power just to maintain slavery so that is another drain on them 
Um, and he, but I think his bigger argument here is really well taken. It's that slavery is being used by the Union to destroy us from within. And it's... Well, let me read a bit and you'll get the sense. Uh, now, when he talks about subjugation, he's talking about us being subjugated by the North, obviously, because he's a Confederate nationalist. He says, um, the consequences of this condition are showing themselves more plainly every day. Restless morals spreading everywhere, manifesting itself in their army in a growing disregard for private rights. Desertion spreading into a class of soldiers it never dared to tamper with before. Military commissions sinking in the estimation of the soldiers. Our supplies failing. Our firesides in ruins. That's like the last document. If this state continues much longer, we must be subjugated. Every man should endeavor to understand the meaning of subjugation before it's too late. So this now he's going to get into what this subjugation is going to look like. So he predicts the future when the Union wins. Inevitable at this point, in his view, unless there's big changes. We can give but a faint idea when we say it means the loss of all we now hold sacred. Slaves and all their personal property, lands, homesteads, liberty, justice, safety, pride, manhood. It means that the history of this heroic struggle will be written by the enemy and that our youth will be trained by northern school teachers. We'll learn from northern school books, their version of the war. We'll be impressed by all the influence of history and education to regard our gallant dead as traitors, our main veterans as fit objects for derision. It means the crushing of southern manhood, the hatred of our former slaves who will, on a spy system, be our secret police. The conqueror's policy is to divide the conquered into factions and stirp animosity among them. And in training an army of Negroes, the North holds no doubt this thought in perspective. We can see three, three great causes operating to destroy us. First, the inferiority of our armies to those of the enemy in the point of number. Second, the poverty of our single source of supply in comparison with this several sources. Third, the fact that slavery from being one of our chief sources of strength at the commencement of the war has now become from a military point of view one of our chief sources of weakness. End quote. So, um, nothing there I really dispute, I mean, except the fact that the lost cause ideology would be a more prominent narrative. He was wrong about that. He was wrong about how powerfully the losers would rewrite and write American history in the generations after the war. And he was wrong about how, I mean, I wish he would have been right about how Reconstruction would have unfolded, but that's, that's not the world we live in. But... So he says the solution is free the slaves. This way will allow. This will take away that weapon, solve the manpower problem. It won't necessarily solve the supply problem, but but it will take one of our weaknesses and turn it into a strength, essentially, which is good strategy, right? You should always do that if you can, in life and in war. Um, now. He can make this statement because maybe because he is a more recent immigrant to the South. He's not as married from youth into the into the system of of white supremacy. Maybe that's it. But he also says here that maybe we'll still have a chance of foreign recognition, foreign sympathy if we do this. And basically, he says it's our only hope. I and mean, maybe we won't get it, but it's our only hope. Now, he the final question he asks is like the argument being. I mean, he kind of doesn't really di grapple with the issue that many Southerners had, the racist idea that blacks can't fight. Um, either he's been convinced of that by blacks on the battlefield for the other side, or he just doesn't want to bring it up because, you know, 
it's going to salt the wounds of people who would not be for this policy in the first place. But he de does deal with the question of will they fight for us? And then he kind of punts on this just saying, well, you know, Sparta's slaves fought for them. Uh, he said, you know, says like oh, galley slaves fought, you know, in the Mediterranean at the Battle of Lepanto, things like that. Um, and then he takes on the question, the big argument against it, at least not, I don't think he takes on the big argument against it, which is blacks are in the view of this Southern aristocracy and the ruling class of the South incapable of fighting. But he says like, can, what can the South be if we win? If this strategy works and we win the war, what then? He says, it is said that Republican cannot, Republicanism cannot exist without the institution. Even were this true, we prefer any form of government of which the Southern people might have a molding to one forced upon them by a conqueror. So he's just saying, let the, let's roll the dice and maybe we'll win. And if we do, we can deal with these questions later. Uh, it's not like the North is not dealing with the same question of what a, a republic of, with free blacks would look like. So, anyways, bold proposal, and of course, suppressed and ignored by the rulers. What a fascinating document. I never, I've known about this. I've heard about this Claiborne proposal before, but, you know, never, uh, never read it. So, um, oh, this one's good. This is Sherman. The next document we have here is a January 1864 document from Sherman to a staff officer of his own, Roswald Sawyer. And this is before the Meridian campaign, which was another kind of Western theater campaign, which maybe we'll talk more about in the next episode or two. Um, but he really talks here about the nature of war. And it's something that I think Sherman's becoming a bit of an expert in, actually. We've seen him talk about this before. And whether it's talking about the media and the role of the media in a total war. He's a, he's, he's a theorist of total war, and he's becoming one. And and he's got some historical perspective on this. It's, it's funny that he's thought so much about this, that he that when he writes to Grant later on, we're going to see him, he makes a kind of a stab at Grant, saying, well, you know, I always thought you were a good soldier, but, you know, capable and all that, and you definitely proved it in battle. I always worried you weren't quite up on, like, military history and strategy and the big strategic picture. He's like, ah, oh, but you proved me wrong there too, that you kind of induced it, but you never really studied. You weren't a book reader, Grant, but I love you anyways. That's what kind of the letter says. But um, Here he, Le Sherman shows he really has put a lot of thought into the history of, of war. And he concludes, um, and he's of course living with Southerners more so than I think Maybe some other generals are. He's dealing with occupying southern territory pretty rapidly. It's not like in Virginia where the lines aren't moving that rapidly. He's dealing with, you know, populations in Virginia and Georgia and places, or sorry, Tennessee and, and Georgia and places like that. And he concludes, uh, if the southern people, so this he gets this from kind of his, from his historical perspective on war that he reveals here. He says... We've been so nice to the South throughout this whole crisis. He writes, I assert for our government the highest military prerogative. That's what he wants. He wants basically a military 
He wants the military to be unhinged in its powers in defeating the rebellion. He says, I'm willing to bear in patience the political nonsense of slave rights, states' rights, uncontrolled freedom of conscience, license of the press, and other such trash into which have deluded the southern people and carried them into war. Anarchy and bloodshed and the, uh, um, the perpetration of some of the foulest crimes that have disgraced any time and any people. And he says something very similar later on when he says, like, we've been so nice to the South, and yet they rebel, and yet they insist on fighting, and yet they insist on keeping armies on the field past reason. Like, they have lost, they, I mean, they have lost the right to complain when we burn their towns and totally crush them, you know, and impose a military dictatorship on them. And yeah, it's hard not to like Sherman. A really great document. Um, it's a good thing it's a letter, not just something he, he shared with his staff uh, officer uh, at night over, over some drinks or something. Fun stuff. I'm just, it's like, I, I got to read Sherman's. I, I'm probably going to stay away from the Civil War for a while, but maybe someday, you know, when I'm done with maybe Mark Twain or whatever, I'm going to go back and look at Sherman and Grant's memoirs. Can we wrap it up? Um, yeah, just a few more documents here. Um, I'll skip a couple, but there's one we really have to deal with here. Submarine. Uh, we got a document talking about the first submarine. I think this is just here because it is historically significant technologically that there was the development of the submarine torpedo boat. Uh, there's a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I think sort of, I guess I, two more issues to wrap up with. Um, one would be uh, this sermon, this amazingly brutal sermon um, by... by Don, John Paris, dated February 28th, 1864, which is about the hanging of deserters. So we got 22 men were convicted of desertion and hung in Kingston uh, in North Carolina. These, sorry, these were people who were captured among 300 Union prisoners. Sorry, had to stop. There was some fuck faces out there. Uh, making noise with their cars. I'm on the 14th floor. Pretty annoying. Uh, anyways. The story here is uh, the Confederates captured about 300 Union soldiers. And within that, there was like 50 or so like deserters who like switched uniforms or something. Um, and they, were, they were discovered as Confederate deserters. And then the 22 of these guys were executed. 21 of the remaining Unionist prisoners would later die from disease in Confederate prison camps. So this happened. And then this guy, John Paris, gave the sermon before the desertion. And he, he published it in the newspaper, I guess, because he has a preface to it where he says, From them I learned the bad and mischievous influences have been used with everyone to induce him to desert his flag. And such influences have led to their ruin. From citizens who have known them for many years, I learned of them, had heretofore borne good names as honest, harmless, unoffending citizens. After their execution, 
I thought it proper for the benefit of the living that I should deliver a discourse before the brigade upon the death of these men, that the eyes of the living may be opened to such horrid and ruinous crime and sin of desertion, which had become so prevalent. So then he goes and then we get the printing of the speech he gave before the, the murder of these uh, 20 deserters by, by this um, illegitimate uh, government in North Carolina. Um, and what's his argument? Well, he, he basically says desert, like tree, like what, what's the um, betrayal, I guess, is the crime here, is the sin. Is, is the greatest of sins. And he, who does he talk about? He talks about Judas. So he compares these people to Judas for uh, failing to do their duty. And so he, this Christian guy, you know, fully supports this mass murder without any hesitation. And, you know, he really, he really drank the Kool-Aid here of Southern nationalism. He says, we're fighting for, he mentions five things that we're fighting for and trying to prevent. Um, basically, our land being sold off to pay the enormous debt of the Yankees. And I haven't heard that before, but um, I imagine that fear existed. It must, it must be out there if it's in the speech, the sermon. Um, the idea that part of Reconstruction is going to be seizing all the property of the South to pay off the big war debts. Um, obviously, there wasn't a land reform, so... And if it had happened, it would have been to distribute land to to slaves, not to pay off federal debt. But, you know, conspiracy theories, these types like it. Um, and of course, the worst sin, number two here, the Negroes everywhere will be declared free and placed in a state of equality with the whites. So scary, so frightening that you have to, like, kill a bunch of deserters. Uh, taking away voting rights when Lincoln just said he's not going to do that. So take away voting rights of everyone who served in the war. Um, you know, f rule from Washington. Oh, scary. And the destruction of Christianity in the South. He says, even the men selected to administer to us in holy things on the altar of God must be approved uh, from the North. So this is what he's afraid of. Um, anyways, it's a nice little interesting rant. And it shows you the real, the soul of these, of these Southern nationalists and how far it's sunk. So, anyways, I encourage you to read this document if you get your hands on it. Dated February 28th, 1864. Well, this it comes out as a pamphlet. This was published as a pamphlet. Yikes. All right, next we have Judith uh, McGuire's diary, which just talks about inflation in the South. It's just evidence of inflation, so I don't need to comment on it. But the final two documents I'm going to mention here are U.S. Grant writing to Sherman. And he's like, oh, I've been summoned to Washington. I'm going to be made command of the whole army. Great. And then it's a saying, you guys have been great. It's a, it's a nice little letter where he says, you're the best soldiers I could have ever asked to serve with. Wonderful. And he says, oh, go tell McPherson the same thing. I don't have time to write him, but tell him as well. Tell him from me. Super happy to have you on the team. And now I'm going off to bigger and better things. So nice little document. But really fun is William, or sorry, William T. Sherman's, uh, Sherman's response, where he says, you are Washington's successor. And this is where he says like, you know, I didn't know about you at first, 
But, you know, I now think, you know, even with your lack of knowledge of grand strategy, books of science and history, even without that knowledge, your common sense pulls you through and you're just a brilliant general. So a lot of uh, pat patting each other on the back, but all well-deserved. But he says, don't stay in Washington. You know, the war's here in the West. Come back. You know, you're going to be commander of all the officers, so you don't have to be in Washington. You, you know, you can if you're going to be in the front, if you're going to continue to serve in the front, come serve here out west. He says, God's sake, for your country, for, for God's sake and for your country's sake, come out of Washington. I think he's mostly afraid that that Grant will just become like Halleck and just be a, a, a fixture in Washington. And of course, that's not that's not what happened, thankfully. Um, but. There we are. There we are. We're at the end of volume three of the Civil War. I think I've been doing this series for a long time, but that's my fault because I've been taking breaks from it and doing other things and just kind of puttering my way through. But I'm committed over the next month and a half to finish up this series with another seven episodes. I'll still be finishing up Stephen King's It while I do that. You know, timing will be about the same. I guess I have five more episodes for that, and there'll be seven more episodes for this series. So. I'm planning to finish this up within six weeks um, and then maybe take a short little break, but but jump into Mark Twain at that point, uh, starting with the Mississippi writings. I won't do that chronologically. That would be fun to do, though. Maybe I'll maybe I'll reconsider. Start with some of his articles and and write in writings, essays and short stories and things like that. And then do uh, like Innocence Abroad and the Gilded Age. Kind of do maybe maybe I'll have to consider it, but that's what's coming up shortly. But I got a little bit more work to do on the Civil War. In fact, a whole volume to to complete. But let me know what you think of anything I've said or any comments or anything you can add to my perspective. I know a lot of you out there are much better experts on the Civil War than I am, so I'd love to hear from uh, you if you have anything to add. So uh, thanks as always for listening, and I will see you next time. The trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching.